Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? So today, we're going to talk about something goofy. Because I am still in Las Vegas. And working in another city is hard, y'all. I, for those of you who travel a lot for work, I don't know how you do it. Uh, when I travel for work, uh, I find it incredibly disruptive. So I sought out something kind of fun and funny to talk about in order to, you know, maintain my sanity while I'm on the road. So back in the 19th century, a scientist, a polyglot, and an arms manufacturer, who also happened to have invented dynamite, decided fairly late in life that he would devote his massive fortune that he had attained through blowing stuff up toward funding the Nobel Prize Awards. Uh, that man was Alfred Nobel Prize. No, sorry, wife, my wife just told me it's just Alfred Nobel. He ordered that a panel would award prizes in five categories, uh, physical science, chemistry, medicine, literature, and peace. Uh, the panel does not take nationality into account. It could be 
anyone from anywhere in the world. Awards can go to multiple individuals per category per year. Typically, they tend to be colleagues or they worked on the same problem or area of focus, but there can be multiple winners. But we're not here to talk about the Nobel Prize. Instead, we're here to talk about a prize that only dates back to 1991. And it's for stuff that, at least on the surface level, is either very silly or infuriating. So we are talking about the Ig Nobel Prize. Now, to set the stage, it's first to get to know a little bit about a couple of journals in the science world that don't really fit your normal perception of a science journal. The first is the Journal of Irreproducible Results. Think of it as kind of like a National Lampoon or Mad Magazine for science nerds. Uh, I use the term science nerds affectionately. I also realize that National Lampoon and Mad Magazine might be references that none of you get, but that's fine. Now, one could argue that the webcomic XKCD kind of embraces a bit of the spirit found in that journal. The content includes stuff like outright satirical pieces to coverage of scientific research into seemingly trivial matters, you know, like the kind of stuff like if there was actually a study to determine if you drop a slice of buttered toast, are the odds greater that the toast will land on the floor butter side down or not? You know, someone has to research that. So the story goes that after launching in the 1950s, the little humor magazine began to grow. And this was actually a problem because the two guys who had launched the magazine, which were a virologist named Alex Cohn and a physicist named Harry Lipkin, they started the whole thing as kind of a joke, but it gradually grew into becoming a, a success, which meant that it went from being a joke to serious work to put this together. They already had serious work that they had to do with, you know, like viruses and you know, I don't know, physics. In the 1960s, the pair passed the publication off to a different publisher, and a medical researcher named George Scherer became publisher for a while. But then in the late 1980s, a scientific journals publisher called Blackwell Scientific Publications took over publishing this satirical magazine. Now, the journal has had several editors over its history, but one in particular stands out with regard to this episode that we're doing today. That would be Mark Abrahams. He became the editor of the journal in 1991, and he remained the editor for three years. He wrote an essay for The Guardian in which he laid out how things unfolded. So apparently, he submitted a small sample of stuff he had written in the vein of funny science articles. Because he had written these things, he wanted to get them published somewhere, he wasn't having much luck, so unsolicited he sent them off to this magazine. The publisher called him and offered him the job of editor of the magazine, which was not what he was expecting, but the trick was that he would have no real resources to put the journal together. He would have no staff, he would have no money to speak of, but he really wanted to you know, do this kind of stuff. So he said, okay. And he even called out the original co-founders of the magazine who had been retired for ages. And they happily came back out to, to help out with sort of a, a relaunch of this magazine. Now the journal's transformation caught the attention of Blackwell's leadership. And 
it wasn't long before Abrahams was told he was going to actually get the money and the support that he had been needing but had not received. However, before that could happen, (laughs) this is always the case, there was a change in leadership at the publishing company, and the new president didn't see any real value in the Journal of Irreproducible Results. So those offers of support withered away. So then Abrahams decided, well, what if I offered to buy the magazine from you? What would that cost? Well, suddenly this property that had no value got the price tag of a million dollars. It's amazing how something doesn't have value until a person hears that someone else wants it. (laughs) I guess that's the definition of value. But to go from, oh, it's not worth anything to I'll sell it to you for a million dollars is quite the turnaround. But Abraham's was not ready to put down that kind of money. So he bailed, as did most of the editorial staff. When Mark Abrahams left the journal in 1994, he founded his own science humor magazine. His version is called The Annals of Improbable Research, or AIR, A-I-R, for short. Now, the reason all this is important is that Abrahams actually helped launch the Ig Nobel Prize back when he was editor of Irreproducible Results, but he would continue when he shifted to create the Annals of Improbable Research. Now, I'm leaving out a lot of other stuff, a lot of drama that happened behind the scenes, like George Scher brought a lawsuit against improbable research and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, because George Scher, the guy who had been the publisher for irreproducible results until 1989, actually became the publisher again after Blackwell essentially abandoned the journal. Yeah, so there's all this kind of crazy drama in the background, but that's not really what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the Ig Nobel Prizes. Typically, it goes to actual scientific researchers and rewards work that on the surface seems trivial, maybe even just a total waste of time. But it falls into a category that Abrahams describes as something that first makes you laugh, then makes you think. And maybe it makes you think about something in a really interesting new way. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it just makes you think, what prompted this research? Uh, But yeah, sometimes something that's on the surface level that appears to be ridiculous may actually lead you to say things like, yeah, but why does that happen that way? Or something similar. Like, does buttered toast fall butter side down more frequently than butter side up? And what would happen if you tied a piece of buttered toast to the back of a cat and then dropped it? Don't do that. Anyway, the Ig Nobel Prizes would also go to people as a way to satirically razz them. Sometimes it was not meant as a uh, as as kind of a, a a fun cheeky award. Sometimes it was just meant to say, "This is messed up." For example, in 1991, the first year they ever had the Ig Nobel Prizes, they offered an award in education, and it went to former U.S. Vice President Dan Quayle for quote demonstrating better than anyone else the need for science education, end quote. Zing. Other awards would go out to scientists and others who perpetuated pseudoscience, ranging from homeopathy to crop circles to perpetual motion. In those cases, the award was perhaps a bit less good-natured and more of an attempt to shame someone for coming up short when it comes to scientific rigor. We're going to focus primarily 
on some of the prizes awarded for stuff that relates to technology. You know, tech stuff. The first Ig Nobel Prize for Technology was in 1993, and it went to Jay Schiffman, who had been working on a technology that would project instrument gauges onto the cockpit windshield of an airplane. So essentially, what we're talking about here is augmented reality. But that's not what the prize was for. It wasn't because he had come up with this concept or that he was testing a technology to accomplish this. Because, I mean, that application, it totally makes sense. You would say, well, why would you get Ig Nobel Prize for essentially creating a heads-up display in an airplane cockpit? The prize was for how Schiffman was trying to convince the airplane industry and airlines and such that this technology was safe and reliable. So to do that, he rigged up a 1970 Chevrolet panel truck so that he could project television images onto the windshield. Now, you might imagine that turning your windshield into a transparent television screen might not be the best notion. But Schiffman claimed it actually improved driver safety because people were more likely to keep their eyes on the windshield in front of them. Now, to be clear, the image that the driver would see wouldn't take up the whole windshield. And to the driver, it would look like the screen was sort of in front of their car. Back in 1993, Schiffman met a lot of resistance among auto manufacturers and legislators for this invention. But these days, heads-up displays can be found in several vehicle lines. Heck, at the last CES, BMW showed off a mixed-reality slider technology that would display AR images across the entire width of the bottom of a windshield. So you could get readouts from the far left all the way across to the far right. And then BMW said it would be possible to even transform a windshield into a big-screen TV. So you could argue that Schiffman's concept wasn't wacky or bad. It was just way ahead of its time. Or maybe it was wacky and bad, and we'll find out the hard way later on. Okay, we've got some more Ig Nobel Prizes to talk about, but before we get into any of those, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, when we left off, I talked about a 1993 award. Well, that was also the year that saw an Ig Nobel Prize go to Ron Popeil, the guy who really kicked off the as-seen-on-TV gadget craze way back in the day for inventions like the Vegomatic and the Pocket Fisherman, a device that would scramble an egg while it was still inside its shell. Those all came courtesy of uh, Mr. Popeil. And um, I did an episode about him ages ago. In fact, you can actually do a, a search and find an episode dedicated to Ron Popeil. It was a lot of fun to talk about. The next Ig Nobel Prize related to technology came in 1997 when the award for communications went to Sanford Wallace. Now, in case you had not heard the name Sanford Wallace, or at least it doesn't sound familiar to you, maybe you heard one of his nicknames like Spamford Wallace or Spam King. There were also less family friendly names directed at him. Wallace was a pioneer in electronic spam mail. He created a company called Cyber Promotions that became notorious for blasting out spam email to folks all around the world. And remember, this is in the early days of the internet when some folks were just getting a handle on what email even was. Wallace had a history involving, let's say, questionable marketing schemes. And his incredibly effective methods for sending out spam mail got him some unwanted attention from various sources, including the U.S. government. 
So he was the subject of several cases, criminal cases. And in 1999, he found himself temporarily banned from even having an internet connection, thanks to his spam efforts. He would later go on to create a business that allegedly infected computers with spyware. Then he would offer to remove the spyware in return for a fee, kind of a smaller scale version of ransomware in that regard. By 2016, he was facing jail time and massive fines for his various escapades that, broadly speaking, attempted to monetize frustration and misery. He served nearly two years in prison for all of that. Anyway, the Ig Nobel Prize had his number way back in 1997. Another 1997 award went to a guy named John Bacris. Uh, This award was for physics, and it was another satirical jab at someone failing to use scientific rigor. Bacris was a chemistry professor. He had employment at Texas A&M University. He was originally from South Africa, and he had made several claims that, if they had held up, would have been truly revolutionary. So one claim he had was that he had found a way to separate hydrogen from oxygen using sunlight, which, if were true, would have led to a hydrogen-based economy right away and would have been a, a huge jump in our in meeting our energy needs without you know having to rely on fossil fuels. He even said later that he came up with an alternative method that didn't even need sunlight and still was effective at separating hydrogen from oxygen. Now you can do this by the way. You can use electrolysis, which means you're passing an electric charge through water to break those molecular bonds. But that means you have to spend energy to get hydrogen to separate from oxygen. And if the energy you're spending is greater than what you can capture through using that hydrogen as a fuel or whatever, then you're at a net loss, right? You're spending more energy to get the fuel than the fuel actually provides you in useful work. So if Bacris's methodology had worked, it would have been transformational. Uh, by the way, that was not the only odd claim he had made throughout his career. Another one involved claims about cold fusion, which is carrying out the process of fusion that is fusing two light atoms, like lighter atoms like helium or hydrogen, fusing those into a heavier atom, but doing so at low temperatures, like close to room temperature. That's something that just doesn't seem to be possible. We usually have to do these kind of of experiments at very, very, very high temperatures. If we could do them at room temperatures, that also would be transformational. But while people over the years have claimed to have success with cold fusion, it's never actually panned out. He also pursued transmutation. That's the old concept from alchemy that involves transforming base materials into gold. So that's what got him his Ig Nobel Prize. In 1998, Troy Hertubis received an Ig Nobel Prize for his Ursus suit, a suit meant to protect the wearer from bear attacks. So essentially, this was a suit of armor. It was made out of titanium and chainmail and hard plastic. Hertubis billed himself as a conservationist who wanted to help save animals like grizzly bears. But the tricky thing is, those animals are super dangerous. Hertubi said he had been injured in a previous encounter with a grizzly bear, so the suit was meant to keep him safe in, you know, future encounters. He appeared in a National Geographic special in which he tested out the suit himself, thus earning him the Ig Nobel Prize for safety engineering. 
You may even have seen video of him from one of these demonstrations where uh, a pair of people are holding up a log that's attached to a pair of ropes. So it's essentially a swing, right? It's a big log and they let it swing loose and it swings down and hits this armored dude square in the chest, knocking him flat on his back. That was her wearing his Ursus suit. Tragically, he would much later pass away in a car accident. And uh, it's interesting that he had several different inventions that he claimed throughout his life, some of which, to put it lightly, I would say are unsubstantiated claims of success, like essentially of, of creating an invisible ray kind of thing, like a ray that would turn you or anything else translucent at the very least. Um, there never seemed to be any actual proof of that, but he actually did build the Ursu suit. In 1999, an inventor named Hyuk Ho Kwan uh, created the self-perfuming business suit. <laughs> so, yeah, a business suit that smells real good. According to the Harvard Crimson, the suit, quote, emits a pleasant fragrance when rubbed, end quote. So a scratch and sniff suit. Juan actually attended the Ig Nobel ceremony in person. That has happened quite a bit. A lot of people have, in good humor, attended the Ig Nobel prizes to claim their, their prize in person. So he went to the ceremony and he brought with him four custom-made self-perfuming suits for the four Nobel laureates who were actually in attendance at the prizes. That is class. Uh, also, Kwan's category was called environmental protection, which I just think is brilliant. Also in 1999, the Ig Nobel Prize awarded Charles Fleury and Michelle Wong in the category of peace. So what had they done to merit an Ig Nobel Prize for peace? Well, they had patented a car security system that included not just a burglar alarm, but a flamethrower as well, I guess to torch the person who's attempting to steal a car, which sounds a lot like they had watched Robocop 2, which came out in 1990. Uh, that included a satirical commercial about an anti-theft device for cars that delivers a fatal amount of voltage to the would-be thief. And maybe they saw that and thought, hey, what if we made that but for real and with fire? Unlike Quan, they did not attend the ceremony in person. They had invented this in South Africa. I actually remember when this happened because I remember watching a news uh, segment where they covered this particular invention. And I thought, that is crazy that setting someone on fire could be seen as an acceptable uh, option. Yeah, that was a, a bonkers one. Now we get our first prize awarded for software back in 2000. This went to Chris Nieswander, who created a program called PawSense. So what did PawSense do? Well, PawSense would detect if a cat happened to be walking across your keyboard. They would detect if, if there were these little patches of nonsense texts that were coming in, and then it would block inputs from your keyboard in order to try and you know preserve your important report for your boss or your teacher so it didn't include absolute gibberish in the middle of it, you know, apart from the stuff you put in there yourself. 
And then it would also make a quote sound that annoys the cat is quote. So I guess it was meant to scare the cat from standing on top of your keyboard. I personally think that was a truly brilliant invention that deserves a real Nobel prize, not an egg Nobel prize. There was also an award for research into a really crappy situation, which was namely the quote, collapse of toilets in Glasgow, end quote. This went to researchers who reported that due to aging commodes, essentially, there were a few cases of toilets breaking from underneath the uh, the sitter upon the throne, which also meant these poor folks suffered some pretty nasty cuts and abrasions in the process. It wasn't just, you know, a, a, a plumbing issue and uh, potentially humiliating, but also legitimately dangerous. So they did a study and then issued a report alerting people to this uh, epidemic of breaking toilets. To learn more about toilets, you should search the Tech Stuff archives. I've got an episode I recorded with Josh Clark of Stuff You Should Know. We talk all about the toilets in that one, including some of the world's oldest toilets, flush toilets, If you sort of flush toilets, if you think of the tides as being your flushing mechanism, which I actually visited several years ago. They were in uh, Scotland. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, I'm going to wrap up about these early Ig Nobel Prizes awarded in the fields of technology and related subjects. But first, we need to thank our sponsors. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including... Actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. 
comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. So we're up to 2001. We get another satirical barb. The award for technology went to two different recipients, John Kyo and the Australian Patent Office. So why? Well, just let me quote you the abstract on the patent application that Kyo had sent in. Quote, In accordance with a first aspect of the present invention, there is provided a transportation facilitation device, including a circular rim, a bearing in which a hollow cylindrical member is rotatable around a rod situated within the hollow cylindrical member, and in a series of connecting members connecting the circular rim with the hollow cylindrical member to maintain the circular rim and the hollow cylindrical member in substantially fixed relation, wherein the rod is positioned on an axis perpendicular to the plane of the circular rim and substantially central of the circular rim. End quote. Now, in case you didn't pick up on that, he's essentially describing a wheel, like a bicycle wheel. I mean, that's, that's what the description of the invention amounts to. So he applied for a patent for the invention of the wheel in 2001. Here's the kicker. The Australian Patent Office awarded him that patent. Now, in case you're thinking he was trying to pull a fast one, well, sort of. He wanted to put Australia's innovation patents to the test. He suspected that the patent office was giving very little attention to these patents, which have a much lower threshold than other types of patents. And I'd say his demonstration proved his point. He was also a patent lawyer, so he was showing how backward the system was, how broken it was, and that this could cause real headaches in the, the court systems further on. And later on, the Australian Patent Office would quietly revoke the patent for the wheel. I think this really kind of ties into the recent episodes I did about the history of the U.S. Patent Office. If you remember, in those early, early years, 
there was this issue where the patent office was told it wasn't their job to review patents. It was just their job to approve them and that the courts would sort it out further down, which means that you could have two or three or countless people patent the exact same thing. The patent office would have to award a patent as long as they got the patent fee, the application fee. And then the courts would have to decide which patent was the legitimate one, which kind of seems like it's a really backwards way and wasteful way to do things. That's kind of what Kyo was was pointing out here. So I think the ignoble prize was really kind of calling out like, yes, this was an absurd situation and it did need to be called out like this. And they were, I would say this is more of a sincere award. Now, there's something else interesting that happened in 2001, as I understand it, which is that someone who won an Ig Nobel Prize would later go on to win an actual Nobel Prize, which is, it's not the only time that's happened, but it is the first time. Uh, but we'll talk about that in a future episode. Instead, for our final entry for this episode, I'm actually going to talk about something that happened in 2005. And that's when the Ig Nobel Prize for Peace went to Claire Rind and Peter Simmons, who had published a paper that was titled Orthoptrin DCMD Neuron, a Reevaluation of Responses to Moving Objects. One, Selective Responses to Approaching Objects. So Orthoptera is an order of insects that includes critters like locusts and grasshoppers. The DCMD neuron stands for the Descending Contralateral Movement Detector. So essentially, they were studying how insects like locusts perceive potential threats. Like, how do they perceive movement and then choose to respond? Like, how does that actually work? Now, so far, nothing about that necessarily sounds like it's worthy of an Ig Nobel Prize, right? I mean, it's studying insects and figuring out, well, what is the actual process by which they're able to respond to threats? Well, the way they determined it is what awarded them the prize. So one of the stimuli they tested on these insects was that they showed them Star Wars. As in the movie Star Wars, they they used that stimuli to determine that the insects were actually more likely to respond to oncoming objects, regardless of their size. And previously, the hypothesis was that the size of the object was the main criterion that the insects responded to, that if it was big, they were going to go into flight mode rather than if it was smaller. But no, it turns out if it was something coming toward them, that's what would prompt the response. Now, what I could not tell is whether or not the locusts had to sit through one of the prequels or if, you know, it was one of the good Star Wars movies. There was no word on that. All right, that's enough for today's episode. I will have to come back and do another episode and follow up and do some more of these Ig Nobel Prizes before too long. They're fun to talk about. And once in a while, like I said, the stuff we learn actually ends up being useful maybe in ways we didn't anticipate. You can sometimes learn valuable things from something that's foolish. I'd argue I'm living proof of that. Okay, that wraps up this episode of Tech Stuff. I hope you are all well. I will be back in Atlanta next week, so things should return to what passes for normal then, and I will talk to you again really soon. 
Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It's brand new, season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.